I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Paul Tyson. He's an independent scholar and an honorary senior fellow with the School of Historical and Philosophical Inquiry at the University of Queensland in Australia. He has academic qualifications in philosophy, theology, and sociology, and likes to mix them all up when trying to understand how strange the ordinary features of our contemporary way of life are. Three of his big, biggest intellectual heroes are Plato, Kierkegaard, and Alul. Over the past few years, he's been writing in the science and religion domain, which has resulted in the 2022 book, A Christian Theology of Science, the 2021 book, Theology and Climate Change, and the 2019 book, Seven Brief Lessons in Magic. So first off, thank you for your work in the world. And second, thanks for being on the program. Wonderful to be with you, Derek. Um, so this this interview really emerged out of an email exchange that you and I had, and I want to read one paragraph that you wrote to me that made me say, gosh, let's do an interview about this, which is, quote, I've given a lot of thought to the question of why people find postmodernism slash queer ideology seductive, as like you and like any sane person who's not been through the spiritual wasteland of higher ed, like my wife, to me, the whole shebang is such obvious and dangerous nonsense that either laughter or silent disdain are really the only sort of sensible responses that I can understand. One certainly can't reason with postmodernists as they deny truth, reason, and even communicable linguistic meaning. So, first off, can you sort of introduce us very quickly to the postmodernism slash queer ideology and then lead into what you say about why people find them seductive? And one more thing before we actually start, which is two days ago, I was interviewed by a old school lefty about exactly this question. And we talked about the history of queer theory some, and the question she really wanted to get is not only how did this take over academia, but how did it take over society? And, you know, I said, I don't know. It's, I'm just flabbergasted at the whole thing. So my point is, this is really relevant because I think a lot of people are asking this question. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it's really crept up on us, particularly over the last 10 years. So um, I would say that nobody really saw this coming in the, what you would call the mainstream sort of uh, progressive and conservative, uh, old fashioned progressives and conservatives. Nobody really saw it coming. Um, but if you look back, you can see the signs from a long way away. So, um, I think what we don't often bear in mind is that there are quite dramatic and deep shifts going on in our culture all the time. And um, so the 1960s was an amazing shift, and this was really the end of sort of um, a, a Western culture that was embedded in common Christian assumptions, whether you are a Christian or not. Um, and we moved towards a more hedonistic um, individualist culture, where which was particularly sort of focused on uh, sexual liberation. Um, and that held sway for, you know, 50 years. Um, but once you cut loose from a kind of a transcendent framework of sexual morality, um, queer theory is always on the way. Right. And it just um, it really crashed through in the, the uh, second decade of this century in Australia in legislation. Um, 
We had uh, the Sex Discrimination Act, which was originally drafted in 1984, which was kind of solid second wave feminism, um, old fashioned progressive equality for women uh, was its main objective. And in 2013, definitions of man as a member of the male sex and woman as a definition of as as a member of the female sex were removed from the act. They were removed from the act for sexual discrimination. So there's no longer a definition of sex in the Sex Discrimination Act. And instead, gender identity was put in. And um, this has worked its way through the system. And by now, we, we are really embedded in uh, the universities have really taken it on. Large corporations have really taken it on. Um, schools have really taken it on. And there's been a massive sort of um, top-down uh, legal and educational-driven reform in the norms of our society such that, um, you know, second-wave feminism has been replaced by third-wave feminism, which is deeply embedded in queer theory. And uh, now it's kind of uh, old-fashioned sort of equality between men and women where women were recognised as females is, is kind of passe and society is really trying to ditch all those kind of old-fashioned progressive ideas along with old-fashioned conservative ideas. And most people um, are kind of either old-fashioned progressives or old-fashioned conservatives and are just being dragged along by our institutions and our legal reforms that are very carefully being massaged by um, in Australia, it's Acorn, um, and uh, in the UK, it's Stonewall. It's it's uh, a very very well funded, very well organised, strategic um, queer advancement um, institutions that do lobbying and get a hold of institutions and get a hold of governments, and uh, it's just happened to us, and we have hardly even noticed until it's kind of too late. It's kind of like the frog in the boiling boiling cup cup of water sort of thing so um yeah it's 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 uh remarkable how quickly this has happened and how many people who are you know uh, i would say very much on the progressive left have now felt alienated from um the rights of women and the rights to uh sexual protections and safeties um that were kind of hard won and considered straightforwardly progressive and a very good idea by by most people from the 1960s onwards. Um, so that's just been kind of lost to us, and and a lot of old-fashioned lefties are feeling left out. <laughs> and um, it goes without saying that uh, old-fashioned conservatives are left out. Uh, old-fashioned conservatives have been struggling since the 1960s, and um, so this is the second real kick in the teeth for anyone who's got a kind of a transcendently referenced concept of um, sexual morality. Um, and so one kind of wonders who this sort of seems natural for. And I think it only really seems a good idea for very for younger people who have been embedded in have just been formed by these new trajectories in education and law 
um, and it's, it sort of makes sense to them, but it, it really doesn't make a sense to a lot of the rest of us who are much older. So um, where were we? I, I'm not sure that I've answered the question you asked, Derek. <laughs> that's there, a Derek? that's a yeah yeah yeah. That's a really good introduction, but I'm wondering if you can give us a say. 30 second each or one minute each introduction to what postmodernism actually is and what queer theory actually says, you know, sort of, and not, not, I think you're on my perspective on how crazy they are, but sort of give them their best shot. Yes. Okay. Well, 30 seconds is going to be really hard work um, because it kind of starts in the 14th century. Um, well, if you're but, going to go historical, then go ahead and take longer than 30 seconds. Okay. Um, yeah, so, by, all mean, by all means, start start the 1400s and take 10 minutes if you need to. Yes, I think that's better because um, it, it's really quite difficult to, to understand um, where this comes from without really quite a deep historical dive. So well, um, that That is precisely why I wanted to interview you. So go for it. Good. So um, in the history of Western culture, which is, you know, our culture, um, um, uh, the, there have been three major um, metaphysical periods. Um, so the first major metaphysical period I would date from around the second century BC, which is called Middle Platonism. And um, this goes on until the collapse of the, the Greco-Roman Empire in the West in about the 5th century, 6th century AD. And um, this view is that the tangible world that we can see and perceive is um, hard to really understand. And because it's in a state of flux and contingency, um, you can't ever tie things down in any firm and certain way about the world of experience, spatio-temporal reality. So the things you can't see, um, universal ideas, um, qualities such as beauty, truth and goodness, these are the things that are really real and the things of space and time are kind of shifting and changing all the time and they're not finally real. So that kind of high metaphysical perspective is what we call um, middle platonism leaning to neoplatonism in the um, the uh, classical period uh, to late classical period and um, there were all sorts of other shows in town at the time but that was really the main show in town and in that period of time christianity arises and christianity is very similar to Neoplatonism in terms of what you can't see is real than what you can see. You know, St. Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. Um, this this concept of a high transcendent reality that is the real business of things. Um, and it's not like the physical world doesn't matter, but the physical world is derivative on a transcendent intellective spiritual world. Um, so that's that's the first sort of metaphysical view. Um, now that keeps going through what's called the Dark Ages, um, which is in fact the period in which Western Europe was evangelized by the Irish monks. 
and they set up monasteries all over the place and produced Christendom. So basically by the 11th, 12th century, you've got this new kind of civilization coming in the West, uh, which is very much centered around the Roman Catholic Church. And there's an astonishing thing happens in the 13th century that through Islamic um, translations in Sicily, uh, Islamic translations into Latin, Aristotle is discovered and comes back into the West. Um, and uh, there's this huge kind of uh, shifting moment where they try and incorporate a pagan Greek philosopher into a Christian uh, culture. And it's quite a complicated and difficult dance. And Thomas Aquinas is the guy who manages the baptism better than anyone else. But it's a very, it's an intrinsically difficult baptism because unlike Plato, Aristotle is, doesn't believe there's a soul after you die. <laughs> uh, he doesn't believe the world has a beginning. He's um, much more difficult to synthesize with Christianity than Plato is. Um, so can, can we, I'm sorry to interject, but there was something in your uh, book about um, seven brief lessons on magic. There was a chart near the beginning that I just love, and I'm wondering if you can, it's like page seven or something, I'm wondering if you can summarize that really briefly and then go back to your really interesting story. Sorry to interrupt with this, but that chart had to do with um, animus, transcendentalists, and supernaturalists, and who believes where magic does or doesn't exist. Do you remember that chart? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, can you quickly summarize that and then go back to your story? Because I think that fits right in here with this, don't you? Good, yes. So I, I am taking a long time to, to flesh this out, so we'll, we'll plug, plug that little map in. Um, no, it's great. It's great. That, don't, don't, don't worry about going on. This is, this is really fascinating. Okay. So I, I look at four different... Um, so my little book, Seven Brief Lessons on Magic, asks the question, are things that science can't see real? And so by things that science can't see, I mean magic in a very broad sense. You know, love, purpose, meaning, goodness, all the things, intelligence, thought, all these things that scientists can't see. And uh, I say there are four basic outlooks in, the, in our Western culture regarding magic. And the first one is an animist view where magic is imminent in nature. Everything in nature is kind of a, a, a sort of a living animate soul has a has a soul um but there's no there's nothing that transcends nature nature is magical there's no sort of transcendent other otherness above nature um then there's the next view is the platonist view in which um everything in nature has intellective and spiritual meanings but there is a transcendent um, we could use the word uh, a, a transcendent, atemporal, eternal reality that the, the temporal reality is derivative on. So there are two categories of uh, there's a there's an immediate natural world that's full of living and purposive beings, and there's uh, the grounds of that being which is transcendent. Um, then then there's the supernaturalist view. Um, and this this is uh, something that comes along really in late medieval thinking and early modern thinking, 
which is there's a difference between the natural and the supernatural, and there the natural is no longer full of anything magical. The natural is just stuff. It's just physical stuff. <laughs> and there's a transcendent spiritual supernatural zone where there's spirit and mind and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then the fourth position is the anti-magical view, which is there's no magic in nature and there's no supernature magic at all, um, which we could call modern materialism. So there, there are four very different ways of looking at the world, and they map onto this uh, big sweep history I'm uh, seeking to explain about shifts in metaphysical frameworks in our civilization, from Plato to Aristotle to Democritus in the 17th century. So um, to get back to that story, so uh, you've you've got the classical world is very Platonist, and it's got this um, the the world is magical and full of living realities and spiritual things, but it's not self-standing. There's a higher level of eternal reality that gives all that stuff its meaning. Then you get to the Aristotelian Middle Ages, where um, matter and form are always together. And um, this is um, this eventually produces the idea that the natural and the supernatural are entirely discrete from each other, because in the 16th century, someone, some bright spark, invented the idea of natura pura, um, the idea that nature doesn't need grace to be what it is. And then you've got this division between the supernatural and the natural, really hardening up. Uh, at the modern, at the beginning of the modern scientific age. So um, then, when you get to the modern scientific age, um, you've got people like Francis Bacon who are very interested in um, knowledge as power. So now you get the view that everything that's um, interesting about nature is not what it essentially means, which both Plato and Aristotle are interested in. It's only what you can do with it, utility. So how you can make nature do what you want it to do is really important to Francis Bacon. And this is embedded in a theological view where uh, a new voluntarist view of dominion, where the basic thing about God is that he has a complete arbitrary power and we're made in God's image, which means and God's put us responsible on the earth. So we've got arbitrary power over the earth to do whatever we like. And uh, this combines with the modernist sort of very instrumental understanding of knowledge is power and you get a supernatural heaven that's totally disconnected from the natural world that we're in charge of and that ticks along quite comfortably um, until, until the late 18th century um, and so so early modernity is is embedded in these high theological categories that don't really connect to the natural world so you can do whatever you like in the natural world as part of your kind of Christian uh, right. <laughs> and um, this is still very, very prominent in America, as, as you'd understand. Some, somehow being a Christian means you can do whatever you dang well like for the world. <laughs> um, so uh, the um, you, you get this separation of the intrinsic spiritual meaning of things from human power over nature and um, the the 14th century where a lot of these transitions start 
is is in, is to do with the concept of nominalism. So uh, the word nominalism comes from the word meaning names. Uh, nomus is name. So the idea that intrinsic spiritual things are not really part of things like beauty and universal concepts like species concepts like man and cat, that these things don't really exist in some sort of higher spiritual level. The only things that really exist are concrete particular things, and these universal terms are just names. That's the 14th century invention of nominalism. Wait, and wait, wait, wait. So I'm, I'm loving what you say, except that Antisthenes in ancient Greece also said, famously said, that a horse I can see, hoarseness I cannot see. And he sort of anticipated a lot of this nominalism. So sorry to disagree, but I actually think it goes back a little bit more than the 14th century. Maybe it popularized, but Antisthenes was saying this crap back then. Oh, look, it goes way back. If you look at the pre-Socratics, they're all doing it. Um, the thing is, it didn't really take off. Like, okay. it, it only really takes off in, in more recent times. Okay, great. Um, so the, the, the dominance of Plato and Aristotle, who were very much opposed that trajectory, means that you always had these fringe um, anti-essentialists kicking around, but they never really got a hold of the culture. Um, so, so, and that, that's a fascinating thing about the 17th century because the recovery of Democritus and uh, Epicurus and all these kind of uh, pre-Socratic characters, um, Empiricus, Sextus, well, he's not pre-Socratic, but you know, the, the, the skeptics and the, the, the nominal, the, the people who deny essential meaning from the ancient world are really, um, loved and embraced in the modernist revolution, right? And they're there from the from the 17th century. So postmodernism is on its way from the beginning of modernity. And as you rightly pointed out, it's been um, it's been there from the very beginning in Western thinking. Um, and, and the significant thing here is that Plato and Aristotle don't give a proof against it. But they say, if you don't believe that there's a meaningful reality, there's no point in reasoning with you. So, so the ancient, the, the Aristotelian, the Platonist and Aristotelian, so Plato really doesn't like sophists. And sophists are people who um, just use logical tricks and uncertainties and uh, the ambiguities of language to argue whatever they like, and the only point is winning an argument. And Plato says, well, these people can't be reasoned with because they don't believe in reason. Um, you have to actually have a kind of a trust and a confidence in reason and in truth to take philosophy with the love of reason seriously. So, um, and this, this really proved um, persuasive in the intellectual culture of the classical era and the medieval era. And it still keeps rolling through early modernity, but it's constantly running out of steam. And um, so the, the, the next real major implosion point, I would put it Immanuel Kant. Um, so we'll come to him in a minute. But the eventually this idea that there are, is real essential meaning runs out of steam. Um, 
because it's it's not something you can prove. It's something you have to have confidence in. It's something you have to gamble on. Um, so if we if we are fixated with the idea of absolute proofs, um, then postmodernism is on its way. If we're prepared to reason in good faith that there is a truth, then you're with the classical and medieval kind of concept of essential meaning. So, so the difference here, the big difference here is between essentialists and anti-essentialists. So, um, and interestingly, someone like Richard Dawkins is, is a kind of an old-fashioned medieval essentialist. Uh, I'm sure he'd be horrified if I said that to him. <laughs> but um, he believes that science gives us actual truth about the world. Um, now, you can only believe that not on the basis of empirical reasoning, as uh, David Hume pointed out, um, but on the basis of some sort of confidence that our sensory perception and our reasoning gives us real access to true meaning about nature. Um, this is exactly what postmodernism denies. Postmodernism says, well, there's no true meaning about nature. The only things that are uh, that our words are is cultural sort of accretions. They're, they're things that we make up, they're, they're cultural artifacts, and they're not interested in truth, they're interested in power, and they're interested in influence. Uh, and those, so this is why you just can't have a, a decent argument with a postmodernist, because they're not interested in truth, they're very much the same as the, the pre-Socratic sophists. And um, Martha Nussbaum has, has really pointed this out in relation to Judith Butler. So um, she thinks Butler is an old-fashioned sophist. She's not. Uh, Butler is not interested in in getting to the bottom of anything or talking about the truth of things. Um, everything is considered to be a constructed meaning and constructed for political purposes. And the only thing that words do is they enable you to performatively create your own identity. And um, that's what everyone's doing. And so anyone who says there's an essential and real meaning to being a woman, say, um, is lying. And all they're trying to do is impose their personal views onto everyone else. And that's incredibly unjust. And in the name of justice, we should uh, not believe in anything essential and get rid of all categories of essential meaning and, and true morality. Um, so, so this is the the astonishing thing that's happened to us, because we've kind of let modernity has kind of let the door open for the pre-Socratics and the the anti-essentialists by being largely interested in power, material influential power, and um, the post-modernists have just taken that view and applied it to culture. So would it be, would, would it, is it, is it, I've interrupted you so many times. Is it appropriate for me to ask a question now or are you going to keep going? Yeah, go for it. I think I basically got there though. I didn't give you much of a, a background story about modernity and its Democritean idea of atomism where there's no essential meaning in the world. But um, I think you can pick that up from what I've said so far. Well, I think that's actually really important. So. I want to I want to ask you one question and then and then if you could go back to that that'd be great. So the the one question is all these people who say that there is no there is no there are no knowable truths there is no real there there's no such thing as a woman. 
So what I would like to do is I would like to challenge any postmodernist to stand at the edge of a cliff and to tell me that there is no physical reality there and then take a step forward. It's like they obviously know that there is a physical reality because they have to breathe and because they, I mean, that's where everything begins is we have bodies. And then, you know, I want to also respond to one more thing, which is I really, I really enjoy your work. And I think, and this won't surprise you, I think of perhaps a, a disagreement that we could explore sometime would be if I had to drop myself into a category, it would probably be animist, which I'm sure doesn't surprise you. And, and so the, the, what, why did I say that? Um, because, well, forget that I just said that. The, the important thing is that I don't understand how they can say that there, there are only, there is only discourse when they still have to breathe. Well, the, I, I can look at both of those issues. So the cliff issue and the animist issue, very, very interesting. Um, so a postmodernist will not say that there is no such thing as a material world. They would just say that words don't connect with that. Except they still, they still say that sex is a social construction. So what they're saying is that, is that sex itself, um, I mean, I don't know how they believe that the Tyrannosaurus rexes ever reproduced, because I'm presuming that they also don't believe that Tyrannosaurus rexes uh, were, you know, they, they never read Judith Butler. So how could they have known how to have babies? I mean, there is that physical reality, and they seem to be denying that. Well, it's it's a little subtler than that in in that, um, so postmodernists who I've spoken to on this are very slippery on them, the meaning of sex. Um, so, on the one hand, they'll say, you know, of course, you know, there's human reproduction and it works in certain ways, and uh, there you are. Um, but they will say that. Any words that we make about sex are cultural artifacts, and our words are simply tools of cultural power. So um, they they have this way, and and this is classic <coughs> sophistry. This way of trying to have their cake and eat it too. <laughs> so so you can you can and and they get people like Anne Fausto Sterling, who's trying to say that sex is a, a spectrum and trying to do that using biology um so you you can be slippery with the thing um because everything is slippery if words are just tools of power and they do this with uh wrong gender wrong body gender essentialists in the trans movement as well okay so if you read judith bartley you can't really be a wrong body transsexual someone who thinks they're in the wrong body uh, and they essentially are the gender of the opposite sex um, because there's there's no such thing as a right or a wrong body or a right or a wrong gender in Judith Butler. That's the whole point of Judith Butler. But because there's no such thing as true meaning at all, if you want to be a gender essentialist, fine. The only thing you can't be is 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 a sex essentialist for some reason. <laughs> and, 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 and like you're saying, it, 
it's not coherent, but they don't have any interest in logical coherence. They only have a here an interest in um, cultural power through words. So you'll deny discourse in one area and just say, no, that's bigoted. No, that's heterosexist. No, that's completely unacceptable and just not engage with it. And on another hand, you'll say, well, you want to be a sex essentialist. Oh, sorry, if you want to be an agenda essentialist and you want to be a wrong body gender essentialist, that's fine. You can make gender to be whatever you want it to be. It's up to you. So in this way, they have their cake and eat it too. Um, so I think, I think for me, I mean, all of this history is really interesting. And I think for me, sort of the take-home point that I'm getting from this is that um, because they're interested in language as power as opposed to language as an attempt to um, articulate some sort of truth or, or to articulate... Well, I'm going to back up for a second and, and say, for me, all of this discussion about what language is for fell apart one day in my late 20s, early 30s. And it was it's a very simple thing that happened, which is I was driving on an interstate, and there was a huge highway, and then I pulled off to the off-ramp, and at the end of the off-ramp was a stop sign. And suddenly I realized all this postmodern discussion about language is really absurd because language is not supposed to be about power. It's not supposed to be about substituting for the thing itself. That the stop sign doesn't stop my car. What the stop sign does is say, hey, you might want to stop your car because there could be somebody coming from another direction and you could have an accident. So I realized that the purpose of language is to point us toward whatever reality there is. The purpose of language is to attempt to articulate the best we can to help us understand and to help us communicate reality so that. I mean, on a very simple level, if you and I are in the same room and you say to me, where's the bathroom? And I say, it's down the hall and to the left. You know, what I've done is just given you some directions on how to accommodate physical reality. And so it's all seemed very straightforward to me in all this discussion. Okay. I'm not saying your discussion of language as power is silly. I'm saying the notion of language as power itself is, is absurd to me. Yes, well, uh, it is absurd. <laughs> uh, I entirely agree with you on that. But the way they get away with it is that they're quite comfortable with the ideas of language being about rules. Okay, so there's nothing, the stop sign is something that we set up um, to con convey a kind of a functional, practical safety with other road users. Um, so there's nothing that makes you stop because of a stop sign. Uh, so if it's language is a system of human rules, um, that's fine to them. But what it is not is about true meaning. Okay. Um, and this is where the big difference is between someone who's an anti-essentialist and someone who's an essentialist. So if I say there are no knowable true meanings, um, then all language is about is about setting up rules to, to make things work the way you want them to work or someone wants them to work. So there's always a kind of an interested um, uh, story behind what rules there are. And all the, the uh, transgender people are after to change the rules 
so that their story becomes instead of them being deviants that they're mainstream and anyone who disagrees with them is now a deviant so they're just kind of resetting the the power rules of what the words mean and they're flipping the words all the time okay so to incorrectly gender someone um to to misgender them in reality is to call them by pronouns that don't relate to their sex but they've said misgendering is calling is refusing to do that um so they're, they're just turning the meaning of words upside down um in order to redirect the rules of social social organization and because they only think in terms of the rules of, of social organization set up to serve certain interests and they want them they want to be the people who determine what the interests are because they never think, well, is there a truth about what it means to be a man or a woman? Is there a truth about what a genuinely good, flourishing society is? They never think those questions. You can't have a discussion with them about those questions, and they will simply refuse to talk with you about those questions. Um, but if you've been in a situation where you have experienced um, sexual violence, then it's not okay to just let people make up whatever rules they want. Uh, if you So this is the standing on the cliff thing, right? Um, so I think many people who get drawn into this discourse who come from basically reasonable and safe and happy places um, don't realise what... They've never been on the edge of a cliff. They've never faced violent sexual predation in their own life. And so they don't understand that if you take away all rules about what's normative for sexual behavior, um, because all rules are somehow wrong, which is the anti-essentials view on what's right or wrong about human sexuality, um, then you're going to have a lot of carnage of vulnerable people to people who like the idea of doing whatever they like. And this is something that the... the uh, you know, the postmodern um, gender identity movement just refuses to debate with anyone. They are determined that they are the vulnerable minority here, and if you don't go along with them, you're a bigot. And that's, that's the story. And for some reason, we're all going along with it. So it seems to me relevant to this discussion to point out that, um, and this is classic postmodernism and queer theory, that Judith Butler and many others have argued that, and Allen Ginsberg, for example, argued this, that it is not an adult sexually assaulting a child that is what causes harm to the child. It is the discourse and shame, and Foucault argued this, of course, as he was sexually assaulting children. Anyway, it is not the actual sexual assault that hurts the child. It is the discourse that makes the child feel ashamed, and it's the discourse surrounding, in Judith Butler's case, uh, she even said that we need to revisit the prescriptions on proscriptions against uh, parent-child incest. And, and then, interestingly enough, when she was confronted by the, about this by parents, she denied she'd ever written it, but it's in, uh, it's, it's in her book. Um, so it's there's that sophistry, but the, the point is getting what I'm trying to get is, is this all really interesting history. And then also 
what we're talking about in many cases is tangible harm that, I mean, so the, the postmodern argument is that sexually assaulting a child does not, in fact, hurt the child. There is no essential harm done by that action as opposed to um, where the harm comes from is the, the discourse making, you know, making a big deal of it. As, as Allen Ginsberg said, it's pretty close to, to, to truth um, or pretty close to accurate that prepubescent children, Allen Ginsberg said, would get used to our lovemaking if only the feminists would stop making everything uh, sexy sound like rape. Um, and they're not afraid of our, quote, big hairy bodies. It's, it's all pretty close to a direct quote from his selected, I mean, this is in his selected works. This is not some random letter he wrote, um, which would be bad enough. So I'm, I'm rambling now. So just take over and take it anywhere you want. Uh, yeah. Um, so exactly what you're saying there, Derek, that it's all very kind of the inner truth of queer theory is that all sexual moralities are made up um, and there's nothing intrinsically right or wrong about any sexual act. Um, and so um, what makes something right or wrong is the way it's told and rather than the act itself, right? So that humanly imposed linguistic meanings aren't real in any real sense. They're only real in a traffic rules sense. They're only real in the sense of what the structures of power are and who gets to decide what those power structures are. So it's a denial of the idea that anything can be morally wrong in itself. Right? Um, so if you, if you think, well, no, um, uh, there's something sacred about human sexuality and there are right and wrong ways of uh, being sexual beings um, that are not simply humanly made up but are transcendently referenced to real meaningful truths qualitative truths okay so, so this is the important thing quality itself is denied by postmodernism there's no real quality to anything the only qualities that exist are made up by our words and they're not real qualities they're simply structures of power so um this is why if Foucault thinks you know there's nothing more wonderful than um pederasty um that's his emotional sentimental experience of love and Nobody has the right to say what his emotional, sentimental experiences should or shouldn't be. So he can, he wants to get rid of the age of consent so that it's legal to do what he wants to do. Um, so, uh, and, and this is all very common in the ancient world, right? He's right about that. Pederasty was common in, in the ancient world. So he's denying what has become the, the sort of Christianized concept of, um, uh, sacred sexual realities such that children should be protected um, and that it's totally totally unacceptable for adults to have sexual relations with children um, whereas the, the queer thing is that children have their own sexuality and they can do whatever they want and why, why should anyone impose their values on children um, so 
So the denial of essential moral meanings in relation to human sexuality is why it's simply about the road rules, it's simply about who sets the rules up. There's no concept that the rules themselves reflect a real truth, a real moral truth. Inadequately, partially, but nonetheless, what rules are aiming at, what social rules are aiming at, is some sort of genuine qualitative truth. Um, this is something postmodernism completely denies. And if you don't have any concept of essential, real qualitative meaning, you um, haven't got any defense against postmodern arguments. And I think this is the real problem. Once we, once we went through the 1960s and decided, well, you know, we, we don't really need a kind of a theological framework for, for, for meanings in our culture. Huh then all you've got is science, and science can't actually help you with any qualitative question. Um, and then this kind of runs out of steam because there's there's nothing holding back the sophists now that you've got this cultural ballast of transcendent meaning taken out of the way. And from the 60s with Foucault onwards, you can see the postmodernists just rising through the academic landscape and they've just popped out the top and they've got control because we're all kind of anti-essentialist, hedonistic um, consumers now anyway, right? So so the culture has, the culture itself has, has become very self-pleasing, very hedonic, very um, pragmatic without any essential frameworks of meaning. And so there's no cultural balance to support people who say hang on this is wrong so it's people are not educated who really get that usually <laughs> and, and it's people who are victims of genuine crime who understand there are things that are wrong and um and this is out this is not supported by intellectual culture anymore and our legal culture is being dragged into it because there's no cultural ballast that supports a high frame of essential meaning in, in morals anymore. So we unfortunately only have like four or five minutes left. And I mean, this is, this is just fascinating to me. And one reason I think it's unfortunate is because there's a lot more to discuss. And I, I mean, maybe this is opening up a huge topic, but this is where I think my mention of animism is relevant, is that I'm not sure that we need to reference any sort of transcendence in order to recognize that an adult having sexual relations with a child is harmful. I, I think that that, I, I, I think I can explain that through simply embodied traumatic experience and the breaking of various bonds of trust between someone with more power and someone with less power. Oh, yes, Derek, I, I agree entirely. So in relation to my little diagram on page 17 of uh, Seven Brief Lessons of Magic, the three views, the animist, the Platonist, and the supernatural view, all have a concept of some essential meaning. It's only the anti-magical view, which is that there is no meaning to nature and no supernature that uh, leads to sophism and postmodernism and the rejection of meaning. And I don't think 
that's a majority of people in our society. Um, I think a majority of our people would be animist, Platonist or supernaturalist in terms of my little grid there. And I think we all need to get together and say, hang on, why are we going down this postmodern direction? Um, it's not what most people understand or habitually know to be true, um, but it's because of this kind of intellectual coup and um, unbelievably effective instrumentalism in, uh, in, in lobbying that uh, this movement has managed to succeed. And we need a kind of return to either the concept of this, the sacred somehow. I don't care, you know, personally, I don't care how you have a concept of the sacred, but you need it. <laughs> if, you, if you get it from being an animist, fine, right? If you, you need to have a concept that there is actual real meaning and some things are genuinely wrong. Um, and then it's a problem of making rules and words reflect in some way the truth of those things so that we can live um, for the common good um, and so that we can have a meaningfully good relationship with the natural world that we depend on. And these are the kind of things missing from the anti-magical view, from, from the modern materialist view, which the modern materialist view causes the postmodern irrealist view is uh, what, I've, what I've been trying to explain here. That's this is I, I think this is also fascinating, and I would love to to do another interview sometime. Um, but in the meantime, can you um, let people know how they can find out more about your work, how they can say what your books are again, and so on? Well, thanks, Derek. Look, it's been wonderful to talk, and I feel like we've only just started and scratched the surface too. Um, so I probably tried to do too much. <laughs> um, but yes, no, I, I've got a number of books which you can find on uh, just by looking up Paul Tyson on uh, Google and it'll it'll come up with various books I've written. The, the one I'm most fond of is Seven Brief Lessons on Magic that we've talked about a bit. And it's also my shortest book. It's sort of 22,000 words and it's got a really fabulous um, cover page. Um, so if, if any of you are interested in my work, I'd recommend having a look at Seven Brief Lessons on Magic. Thanks, Derek. It's been a delight to talk. Oh, it's been, yeah, this has really, really been interesting. Thank you so much for um, everything you said here. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. And this is Derek Jensen for, well, I should say my guest today has been Paul Tyson. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. <laughs>